We are back. Welcome to another week in the world of SaaS. And what an episode we have in store for you today with the CEO of one of the fastest growing enterprise companies of our time, Dave McJanet, CEO at HashiCorp, providing consistent workflows to provision, secure, connect, and run any infrastructure for any application. And to date, the company's raised over $349 million in funding from some of the very best in the business, including Bessemer, Redpoint, True Ventures, IVP, Mayfield, TCV, and GGV, to name a few. As for David, prior to HashiCorp, he held some incredible roles, including VP of Marketing at GitHub and Hortonworks. Before that, he was also Senior Director of Product Marketing at VMware, and then also spent over five years seeing the first-hand hyper-growth of Microsoft. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Scott Rainey, Glenn Solomon, Tom Lavero, Armand Dadgar, Robin Vassan, Dave Yuan, for some truly fantastic questions and suggestions today. As you can tell from that list, it was really a team effort, so huge thanks for that. But before we dive into the show today, let me state the obvious. Video consumption has skyrocketed over the last six months. And more than ever, developers need to be able to quickly build rock-solid video into their applications. And Mux is an API-first platform that makes building online video experiences easy. What Stripe does for payments, Mux does for video. Mux handles storage, encoding, and delivery, so your development team can focus on building product. Live streaming is just as easy, and Mux will scale with you as you grow, whether you're serving a few dozen streams or a few million. Designed by video experts and trusted by companies like SoulCycle, Robinhood, Visco, and Hopin, to name a few, your video will work perfectly on every device every time. Sign up for a free account and get $20 credit at mux.com. And every great product needs great marketing and you have to check out the book, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls. It's a wake-up call for modern marketers and sellers. It's a guide to ditching traditional strategies that are no longer working and focusing on customer experience to drive revenue growth. This book is more than lofty theoretical ideas. It delivers proven B2B strategies, tactics, and plans that are ready to be adapted, custom and tested by marketing and sales leaders. It provides a step-by-step guide to move your revenue teams away from an MQL-focused approach and align them around an ABM model that fundamentally puts prospects first. Check out more at sixcents.com forward slash Sasta. That's six, the number, sense.com forward slash Sasta. And last but by no means least, there is always competition. And Ahrefs makes competitive analysis easy. Their tools show you how your competitors are getting traffic from Google and why. You can see the pages and content that send them the most search traffic, find out the exact keywords they're ranking for, and which backlinks are helping them most. From there, you can replicate or improve on their strategies. If you're not getting significant search traffic, Ahrefs tools also help to find topics worth creating pages or content on. You can easily see estimated search volumes and gauge traffic potential with their Keywords Explorer tool. If you are getting search traffic, use features like their Top Pages report to break down which of your pages are bringing in the most traffic, then figure out how you can replicate their success. Want to learn more? Check out their blog or YouTube channel for step-by-step SEO tutorials. They have a seven-day trial for only $7. Head over to hrefs.com to sign up. That's ahrefs.com to sign up. But that is quite enough of me. So now I'm very excited to hand over to Dave McJanet, CEO at HashiCorp. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Dave, it is such a joy to have you on the show today. As I said before, I felt like a bit of a stalker having spoken to so many of our mutual friends from Scott Rennie, Dave Wan, to Armand, Tom Lavero. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dave. Thanks for having me, and um, thanks to them for responding. Ah, listen, they gave me some great stories, but I do want to kick <laughs> off today with some context. So first, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS? Let's start there. So I started my career in the world of finance, actually, and I moved to the Bay Area when my girlfriend, now my wife, came here for grad school. And after a bunch of moving around, I ended up working in product 
product development actually for a middleware company. And uh, you know, I did that for four years. And I think you know, the first time I went to a retail store and swiped my credit card and knew that that transaction was going through stuff that we had envisioned and built, I was kind of hooked forever. And I've been in the world of enterprise software ever since. What a career it has been. Tell me, as I said, I spoke to many of the investors and especially actually Robin now at Mango. He said, ask about this. What was the process of meeting and taking the job as CEO at HashiCorp? Robin introduced me to Armin Mitchell about a year and a half before I agreed to join them. So at the time, if you kind of fast forward, I'd run marketing for a couple of companies that had really good growth runs into the public markets. And I was certainly not looking for another job. And, and so I helped them out in the background around a couple of young guys working in the world of open source infrastructure. Again, that's a pretty small Venn diagram of expertise. And so I met with them over and over and over again. And eventually they came back to me and said, hey, would you like to join us full time? And I was like, no, I'm good. Startups are hard. And eventually that became, okay, would you be interested in joining to run marketing? Then it was like, would you be interested in running the COO role? And I said, no, I'm good. And then they came back and said, would you be interested in joining a CEO? And I sort of said, hey, I'm not really interested in doing another company. But I was kind of intrigued because I couldn't quite explain what the products did, but I knew that they were integral to this cloud transition. And if you pattern match to the companies that we had success with, it was big market transitions going from one way of doing things to another way of doing things, which was dislocating category spend. And I was just incredibly impressed with them, but I really had no interest in being a CEO. I mean, as I know now and you then, CEO job is a very difficult one. So it took a fair amount of sort of internalizing for me to say, okay, all right, you know what? Let's do this. I'm going to take off the clothes and jump in the pool yet again into the unknown. I think we look at it in terms of sort of market model and team. When you look at companies' opportunities and the market sort of as I described, the model is like, yeah, these guys have built these open source things, which are interesting to me. But really it was the team side of it. You know, I jokingly have said a couple of times, I think my wife who had been in the venture world for some time said, hey, if you can't build something valuable with these guys, then you're an idiot. And I think eventually I took that to heart and I joined the CEO yeah, about four and a half years ago. It's been a phenomenal, phenomenal exercise. And I actually credit Robin Vasson. Robin Vasson, ironically, was on the board of that middleware company that I did so many years earlier. And he and I had stayed in touch and he and I, he'd been trying to get me into one of his companies for a while. And, and this is the one that worked. But bringing someone in to be CEO of an early stage company for any founder is a massive, massive decision. And it took a lot of sort of mutual sort of vetting on both sides for us both to be comfortable that we were aligned to what we're trying to build. And it's been a really, really fun experience. Totally. No, it's a massive one. And my father once told me, Harry, if you want a happy marriage, it's simple. Just do what your wife says. Um, <laughs> I, I, I always remembered that one. But, you know, it's, if we take that kind of one logical step further, it's a massive thing for them and, you know, huge credit to them for taking that step. It's also a big and very, very difficult thing for you, not as the founder, to assume the CEO role so early, more early than you kind of traditionally assumed. So what was it like to take over the CEO spot from the founder and how did you make it work? That was from Scott Rainey. No, I think all these things are ultimately about trust. Like, it's no different than any sort of endeavor, whether it's a relationship or whether it's company building and selling software to people. It's about trust. And I think you have to enter into it with that view, which is, I think they understood my interest was in just building a company and building something valuable and not really too fussed about what seat anybody was going to be in, but just acknowledging there's a certain core truce to how you build companies and somebody has to be CEO so that everything is aligned. And so that was actually a relatively seamless transition and it only happened because of them. They projected the view internally and externally that says, hey, we've recognized that we have a particular superpower around certain things, but building a company is much more than those things. And so we want to partner with people that can help us have this company realize its potential. And if it takes giving up the CEO seat to do so, then we're totally cool with that. And that level of humility, I think, is kind of amazing, but also indicative of those guys. So step one was just real clarity around what the role would look like. And yes, companies have to be structured a certain way. Number two, it really only worked because of the way that they embraced it. And then number three, you know, very, very quickly, and it's kind of ironic because now when I reflect back on the last three sort of large runs we've had, we did it the same way. Is step one is we sat down and said, let's get real clarity on our mission. Because I think when most people face with the same data, make the same 
decision. So we spent an enormous amount of time for those first four or five months just saying, hey, what is it the mission that we are collectively going to pursue together? And let's be clear on that and then let's just execute. So I think that was a huge part of it was just sort of just real clarity of mission. We use the phraseology that a company is nothing more than a group of people aligned around a common idea. Obviously, we're not the originators of that term, but I think we embrace it. And so we needed to be clear on what that idea was, number one, and then number two, what the principles of how we would act would be. And I think once we got clarity on those two things, not surprisingly, there's been not a lot of debate ever since. No, absolutely. And I think that kind of alignment up front is key. I do want to ask it in terms of your leadership. Leadership's changed and evolve in terms of kind of the styles. How have you seen your leadership evolve and develop over the last four years? You know, I think we are who we are. And so I don't think the leadership style changes over scale because we sort of, we are who we are. I think we project a clear north and we're very authentic with respect to like how we're going after it. I think it's more that the job changes. And I think there's a point at which early on you're doing all the roles and you have your hands on all the levers. I'm the one creating the financial plan. I'm making sure the support tickets get closed. I'm involved in the roadmap. And I think that transition goes from being very involved to being much more directive over time. And I think that's something that just happens naturally, but it's very obvious that your style ends up being obviously much less hands-on and much more about reinforcing the clarity of the mission, both of the mission of the company and the behavior that we're going to all collectively exhibit towards the retirement of that mission. So that's the transition. It's sort of more from the hands-on to hands-off, which is not surprising. But obviously, you have to have the right people to be able to hand off the pieces to. So there's a very logical transition that happens, but authentically, it doesn't really change. In fact, I spent some time at Microsoft, and one of the exercises that I did there really caught my attention around communication, which I think about a lot, is you do this exercise to understand what your core values are, because you don't realize that when you communicate, you deliberately or not, you have certain things that are authentically you care about. You know, Oprah Winfrey, she has like five or six things she talks about consistently. And so a lot of the key is just sort of really understanding who you are, what's important to you. For me, it's things like humility and competitiveness and intellectual rigor. These things tend to be your communication cues. And in terms of leadership style, that's what you end up leaning on because it's authentically who you are. And I think like understanding who you are allows you to communicate more authentically and has people react to you in an authentic way because it's very all very, very consistent. But the tactics of what you do obviously change over the course of the company life cycle. Can I ask, um, sorry, I'm too intrigued here. If you are who you are as a leader, how do you think about like leadership growth and development for CEOs who want to scale themselves, their skills, their first time CEOs? If you are who you are, does that mean you can't scale as a leader? How do you think about that? Sorry, help me out here. I think there are skills and then there are attributes, I think is how to think about it. I think there are skills that can be learned for how to be a better leader, how to be a better marketer. <laughs> These are skills, but the attributes are more natural to you and sort of inform how you express those skills, if that makes sense. For example, someone like Armand, who's one of the co-founders, incredibly talented guy when you meet him, but what really strikes you is the humility of the guy. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met, but is sort of incredibly humble. So now when he's a leader, that's just naturally how he projects himself. And I think that's more what I mean is sort of there are learned skills around leadership, but the machinery you have to work with is relatively innate. And I think the leadership challenge is how do you understand who you are, understand what those skills are, and understand where those may be pros and cons so that you can manage them better as your shadow gets larger and larger. Sorry, I am digging in here, but I am interested. So does one go through like a process of self-discovery on the type of leader that they are in terms of discovering those attributes? Do you think it's just inherently obvious? How do you think about that when advising younger CEOs who are kind of navigating who they are as people and as leaders, I guess? Yeah, this is a fascinating one to me. And I think this is, this is where a lot of big companies really have an advantage because this notion of leadership development is something that big companies invest in pretty deeply, right? There are, there are programs at these big companies where they do nothing but this in preparation for giving those leaders the reins to bigger parts of the organization over time. And then you have the startup world where people get thrown right into that job and day one. So they haven't necessarily had the opportunity to do the self-reflection to say, okay, let me think about the core foundations of leadership. It's about communication. It's about establishing a shared vision. 
It's about holding people accountable at the tactical level, but it's much more around these bigger picture things. And yes, I think you have to, at some point, do a self-inventory of like, okay, let me think about how I think about the world. What are the core things that I care about? And just know that deliberately or not, you are expressing those things when you communicate. And you have to have that self-knowledge of what those things are so that you can then, when you develop the skills more tactically, know that they're being expressed, but with this point of view. And the challenge is, how do I do that in a really authentic way so I can exercise those skills in a way that is true to my view of the world? I totally agree with that in terms of expressing them in a way that's true to you. My question too is also like, you know, you mentioned your time at Microsoft, you mentioned the larger companies there and how they invest in leadership development. In terms of like maybe lessons from Microsoft and your time within the larger companies, now when thinking about scale and scale efficiently, sorry, it's a bit of a crap question, but I am intrigued to ask it. And it's like, <laughs> is there a repeatable playbook to scaling companies and teams? There are definitely repeatable elements to it. I think the beauty of bigger companies, so just give a snapshot, I spent about five years at Microsoft and ultimately had responsibility for about a $500 million portfolio of theirs, which was relatively across like six different products and three different segments, so relatively pretty complex. And what you see is what the world looks like at scale. You're like, ah, this is what it's going to look like at scale. I have different segments. I have different levers in each segment. Got it, right? So conceptually, you sort of get the light bulb. Yeah, that's what it's going to look like at scale. And then the last two companies I've done from essentially zero through larger scale, and obviously those lessons don't apply (laughs) to a company that's at zero. What we learn over time is that, great, if you know what it looks like at the end, got it, bookmark that. But then companies go through phases. And I work for a guy named Rob Bearden, who I think is really, really good at this. He was the CEO of Hortonworks, among other things. We think of like zero to 10 million as a phase, 10 to 30 is a phase, 30 to 50 is a phase, 50 to 100 is a phase, 100 to 250 is a phase, etc. And these are very distinct phases and they're phase shifts. And I'm applying a revenue number to them, but that's just in the world that I come from of like, that's roughly what it's looked like the last three times. Probably equates more to like finding product market fit. So I think the CEO's job is to anticipate the phases because everybody's role changes almost overnight at these phases. And give you a really simple example. Hey, you're the product marketing person for a B2B company that's going from zero to 10 million. Great. You go from zero, product marketing person is the kind of like the core nervous system. The salespeople say, hey, what do I say next? What do I say next? And it's sort of fed out to them. All of a sudden you get to 10 million. Well, now you just have too many reps <laughs> and there's not enough hours in the day for that product marketing person to do the job the same way. What they now have to do is sort of step back and create a content consumption mechanism that aligns to the stages of the sales cycle so that those reps can all be successful. And they're like, oh, got it. I have to reinvent how I do my job at each of these different phases because there are just phase shifts that happen. So the job then of the CEO, and I think Rob did a phenomenal job, we've tried to do it here, is how do I make it so that the organization doesn't feel those phase shifts and don't trip? I think, yes, it is repeatable in a sense in that you have to kind of keep reinventing, 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 which is why people that tend to do well in the startup environment tend to be systems thinkers because their job is not a skills-based thing. It's about the ability to decompose the system for the next phase, for the next phase, for the next phase. So yes, eventually you get to the larger scale, you know what it looks like, but you have to be acutely aware of the phase shifts and you have to, you know, that product marketing example is gets rewritten in every function of the company and you have to keep forcing, 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 forcing. So that's my job is to anticipate the phases and make the organizational adjustments to force people to go over those boundaries without noticing. I mean, no pressure. I do have to also, like in terms of those phases, and I love that in terms of kind of that kind of structured systems thinking, where would you put yourself at now then in terms of a phase? And I guess, what are the challenges that you think you will encounter at this phase? And how do you think about tackling them? So our problems are unique because we have deliberately created multiple products. (laughs) So we're about a thousand people today. We have four products with very clear product market fit. That's unusual. And these are not, oh, this is a different module of the same thing. No, these are different products. Like one's a provisioning product, one's a security product, et cetera. So our problems are unique. So what matters most to making these companies go is the feedback loop between product marketing, product management, and engineering, creating that feedback loop. So great, I have four different products. Then how do I create an org structure where I empower those feedback loops to get ingrained inside each of the different four product teams that I have? So we actually deliberately federated the company out in a previous phase to say, now I have a trio, product marketing, engineering, product management, lead 
leader of every product group that I have. We have essentially four product groups. So that's an example of like, we didn't do that until we got to a certain phase because all of a sudden the phase shift implies I can no longer be involved in every product decision because I'm just too far removed. It's just too big. So you have to federate decision-making down and then create these forced feedback loops so that those people get upskilled to be able to make the decisions that I would have otherwise made if I'd been in those seats. That's an example. I think that's one of the challenges that you have when you start to scale a multi-product company is finding enough business leaders to know how to make the market function for each of the different functions. And that's something that we coach. So that's sort of like the product side. On the field side, this happened to us about a year ago. We had to just commit to segmentation. So now we have four segments. We have a global segment, enterprise one, enterprise two, and a commercial segment, right? We have named account coverage inside of that. And now we have an assigned leader for each one of those things. Again, it's about feedback loops. I want to hold one person accountable now for the entire global segment, the entire E1 segment. So the decomposition to the systems of the company is sort of what I mean. And you can play that out across customer success and support, across product management. It all sort of follows that same pattern of like, there's just a scale number at which you just have to decompose things into slightly different systems. And that's the product and the go-to-market side. There's two elements that I'd love to unpack that. One is like the accountability element. And my question is always like, how do you create a effective mechanism of accountability that is ambitious and high reaching, but then is also not disincentivizing or discouraging if it's not hit? How do you think about that balance between aggressive, but not discouraging if it's not hit? Well, I think unfortunately in the sales organization, it is what it is. I've set the revenue number in the early stage for now a few companies. And like, yes, it's not fair, but it is what it is. Those sales teams are on a revenue number and sometimes it works well and we pay them a lot of money. Sometimes it doesn't and that's the way it works. So I think on the field side, it takes care of itself. Now, you have to create comp plans for field organization that keeps them appropriately motivated, but we reset those every six months so we can't get that far off. So, you know, on the field side, it takes care of itself. On the other side of the business, like the further away you get from field, the harder it gets. So ultimately, we actually break down our revenue targets by product. And so it is a notional target. Their compensation is not tied to it in the product organizations, but it's a notional target that I interrogate and expect. Like I run a monthly business review with every one of our business group leads. So we're having that conversation every month and their comp may not be tied to it, but they know when they're underperforming. And fundamentally, people are competitive. They want to build things of value. They want the work that they're doing to render revenue because that's the attestation that value has been created. So we don't need to create an artificial target for it. They are pulling as hard as they can for revenue. And again, that's a bit of a cultural thing. Like we don't have to force it because what we have deliberately done is created a pretty competitive culture, not internally competitive, externally competitive. We do this because revenue shows you progress and it shows you value creation. And that's what we get up every day to pursue. So while on the outside, it may not look that way. That's our true north is revenue. And that's what we look at as our scorecard ultimately. So we don't struggle with it truthfully because we wake up every day culturally in pursuit of making our customers successful, which renders into renewals and expansions. And that's where we get our satisfaction from as a company. That's what we celebrate. It's not about selling products. The renewal is where we make our money and the renewal is what we live for. And I think that's a gearing of an organization culturally. Totally agreed with you there. The element you've mentioned quite a few times is the multi-product element. And as you said, it's very unique in the development and the kind of life stage of the company when it was done. My question too, and I always think about this one, it's like, how do you think about aggressively pursuing a second product and when the right time to do that is versus go slow to go fast and be very disciplined around execution on what your current product is? How do you think about like the right time to add that second, third, next product? There are basically two broad buckets. We've done this in previous lives at traditional companies and then we've done it in open source. And I think I'll split the two across separately. I think traditionally the right model is to focus on one product, get repeatability, have that allow you to create a distribution channel. And then you start looking at the adjacencies to that distribution channel. Like what other products can I drop into that same distribution channel to broaden my addressable market? And I do that probably not until, you know, maybe you're at hundred million in ARR. I don't know what the number is, but like at some point you need to get repeatability just because the, the math of it is just too expensive. Like these things are in conflict. Multi-product versus efficiency are in conflict and they're in conflict in the field organization because you can't have a field organization that you're telling to do too many things because nobody makes any money because no one's an expert 
what you're doing. So generally speaking, I would say focus on one product until you get repeatability, until you get a distribution channel established, i.e. a sales route to market that you can drop other things into. We did that, for example, in the entity that became Pivotal, right? We acquired some data assets. We basically did an inventory and we sort of said, okay, based on routes to market, what other things can we add? You can grow a company pretty quickly that way. On the other side of the fence is what we did, which is through open source. And it is only achievable in open source because of the development leverage you get in open source. So Armand and Mitchell had this view from the very, very get-go that to solve the problems of application delivery onto cloud, you actually needed all these products. So we actually have five, six if you include Vagrant, which is sort of disconnected, but there are five core products you require. And they knew that out of the gate. It's like, I wish I could solve it in less, but we use the Unix philosophy, one thing that does one product does one thing. So they actually knew that they wanted to create all five. So they created all five out of the gate. Now, the only reason that works is because you can let them run in open source. And I think open source enables this sort of notion of like having people contribute. We, like, we have 13 or 1400 contributors to Terraform on GitHub. So to build a business around Terraform would have required another 1300 people in our payroll. And obviously that was not going to happen. So I think we did it in open source because open source gives you this tremendous leverage. And then we said, okay, great, let's let those run. Let's let standardization happen in open source. And then we'll build commercial orientation and a commercial route to market that we can drop these products into. So what became a giant headwind initially becomes a giant tailwind once these products mature. I think the other thing that we have going for us is that our buying center is generally the same for all of our products. It's people's cloud programs. And I think that's the other thing you really have to consider is does your distribution channel support multiple things going into it? It does if it's a common buying center. So hopefully that gives a sense. No, I totally agree in terms of that kind of single buying center. I do want to ask, we've discussed the team earlier and it was something that came up with a lot of the investors that we mentioned before. And they mentioned how largely HashiCorp has been remote to a large extent for a while. And so I want to ask you in terms of lessons, what are some core learnings of what it fundamentally takes to make remote work so effectively and how you've approached it? Yeah, I'll go back to where I started, which is a group of people aligned around a common idea is where it starts. There has to be this constant reinforcement and understanding of two ideas. One is the mission and number two are the principles with which we pursue that mission. And if you go to our website, we are very explicit about the things that we care about in terms of our principles. And that behavior is a lot harder to model when people are remote. So you have to keep reinforcing it. So number one, it's that clarity. Number two, it's sort of, you get nothing for free when you're remote. And so you have to create rituals and rhythms which deliberately create what it is you might otherwise get for free. For example, we run a weekly all hands for a thousand people every week. This is a touchstone touch point. As I were joking earlier, to give you a sense, one of the teams that presented this morning on the, it was the marketing team. They did their entire presentation to a thousand people today to the lyrics of Hamilton just for fun. So like they'd rewritten their whole presentation and then actually had people sing some of the songs. Like it's that kind of stuff which reinforces culture, uh, reinforces the creation of empathy for each other and reinforces the mission that we're after. So like there are these rhythms and rituals which are different that you have to think about. I also send out a weekly email to the entire company just underscoring the mission for what we're doing. But then on, like there's very tactical stuff like our core product teams live in the same time zones. So as big as the company is, people working on Vault generally live in a geographic cluster that's in the same time zone. Those working on Terraform are generally in a cluster. So those are some examples of it. Can I ask, how important is the time zone alignment? Because it's one where people have different views. How do you think about that crucial element of like time zone importance? We think it's really important. There are some exceptions to it. And again, I would broadly categorize there's the product side and then there's go-to-market side. Product development in the world of software is an essentially asynchronous exercise where we've gotten accustomed to using GitHub to have an asynchronous dialogue. And so it actually works a little bit better in multiple time zones. The go-to-market side, the feedback groups are just much, much, much faster because the market moves faster than I can deliver products. So I think it matters more on the go-to-market side than on the product side. And we've always had pretty much all of our go-to-market people in the same location, if not the same time zone, but the product stuff separated. I go back to the feedback loops. You have to be really, really deliberate about the 
of feedback loops. So, so like this notion of these trios, how do we force the feedback loops from customer support into that trio? How do we the, the feedback loops from SE and sales into that trio? You have to be really thoughtful about the feedback loops as well you're trying to create. Totally with you in terms of the feedback loops. And really interesting to hear how the time zones differ on function level, so to speak. I do want to dive into my favorite though, Dave, which is a quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? All right. Okay, so tell me, the favorite book and why? What must we be reading? I really like the idea of play bigger. I'm sure other people have talked about it. You don't have to read the whole book, but the core notion is the world has gone digital. And so it's insanely easy for me to figure out who the predominant player in any category is because I can just do a Google search. I want to buy an electric car. I can tell you within 30 seconds who the leading vendors are as an example. And that didn't happen previously. So it actually exposes what we've done the last couple of companies is you have to own the category. You have to create the category because all the digital signals accrue to you eventually if you create the category. The category economics, 80% of them go to the category creator. So you best be creating categories. What would you most like to change about the Valley tech scene today, Dave? I mean, there are lots of things around. The diversity of it is certainly one that could use a lot of work. But I'll also pick another one, which is I think people move around way too much. I think people coming out of college and sort of early in their career go to a company for a couple of years and go, great, I got this on my resume. Now I'm going to use that to go to the next company. And they're missing the point. You're not getting the value you think you are because you're not really learning the skills from the people at that company. And number two, you're not really building the network that is going to be durable for you. And I think both of those things get sacrificed in pursuit of the next shiny thing. People have to recognize careers are long. What we should all be focused on is skills acquisition so that we know how to do this repeatedly, not just trying to get good companies on our resume. A little birdie told me that your wife is a former VC. What are the pros and cons of having your wife as a former <laughs> VC, Dave? She's way more knowledgeable than you think. I think it's the uh, both pro and the con. So I got to be careful what I share with her. It's helpful to have somebody to talk to about this stuff. I think being a CEO of a company is a very solitary pursuit in a way. And I think that's enormously helpful. And I think you know, the huge, huge pro, you know, she would call it a con <laughs> because she gets to be my sounding board for a lot of things. And I think if I could make a separate point, because I think like founders going down the scaling company journey, I think also just need to understand how hard this gets. Like for us, I think it was sort of the point between, I don't know, 30 and 100 million or whatever it was, where it's like, there just are not enough people, not getting enough people in the company. Things are not quite ready the way they should be. And you are carrying the whole thing on your back. And I think that is maybe just comforting for people to know that there is a phase like that, but it does pass. <laughs> and I think having someone in my house that understands it, seen it is certainly helpful. This too shall pass. Totally love that. Tell me, if you were a cocktail, what cocktail would you be, Dave? I would be a beer, a Canadian beer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, final one. Next five years for you and for HashiCorp. Paint that picture for me. Now, I think we've been really clear about what it is we're pursuing. We think we have the opportunity to build the next large infrastructure company. And the market wants us to play that role. You can feel it. The market wants you to play this role of enabling consistency around op security and networking in the cloud era. So that's the mission we set out to pursue. I think we have been unwavering in that mission. I think we fundraised in pursuit of that mission to send the signal to our customers that we are a safe long-term infrastructure partner. And that's what we're going to pursue. And I think there's a peculiar orientation to people that like this stuff. We think it's cool that credit card process went through our stuff or that cable set-top box doesn't turn on without us. That's what we like to do. It's a very much a behind-the-scenes, we know what this stuff does. Other people don't need to know. We get our satisfaction from that. We like the role that we play. That's what HashiCorp's going to pursue. And that's fun for people like myself. That's what we get out of bed to do is to see that role get played for the biggest companies in the world and to know that we are making it possible is what we're going to continue to do because that's just interesting to us. Dave, as I said at the beginning, I had so many good things. I felt like I knew you coming into this one. So thank you so much for joining me today. And this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me.
I have to say, I did so enjoy that discussion with David and such exciting times ahead for HashiCorp. If you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I always love to see you there. But before we leave you today, hey, let me state the obvious. Video consumption has skyrocketed over the last six months and more than ever, developers need to be able to quickly build rock-solid video into their applications. And Mux is an API-first platform that makes building online video experiences easy. What Stripe does for payments, Mux does for video. Mux handles store storage, encoding, and delivery, so your development team can focus on building product. Live streaming is just as easy, and Mux will scale with you as you grow, whether you're serving a few dozen streams or a few million. Designed by video experts and trusted by companies like SoulCycle, Robinhood, Visco, and Hopin, to name a few, your video will work perfectly on every device every time. Sign up for a free account and get $20 credit at Mux.com. And every great product needs great marketing, and you have to check out the book, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls. It's a wake-up call for modern marketers and sellers. It's a guide to ditching traditional strategies that are no longer working and focusing on customer experience to drive revenue growth. This book is more than lofty theoretical ideas. It delivers proven B2B strategies, tactics, and plans that are ready to be adapted, customized, and tested by marketing and sales leaders. It provides a step-by-step guide to move your revenue teams away from an MQL-focused approach and align them around an ABM model that fundamentally puts prospects first. Check out more at 6 com forward slash saster that's six the number sense.com forward slash saster and last but by no means least there is always competition and hrefs makes competitive analysis easy their tools show you how your competitors are getting traffic from google and why you can see the pages and content that send them the most search traffic find out the exact keywords they're ranking for and which backlinks are helping them most from there you can replicate or improve on their strategies if you're not getting significant search traffic hrefs tools also help to find topics worth creating pages or content on. You can easily see estimated search volumes and gauge traffic potential with their Keywords Explorer tool. If you are getting search traffic, use features like their Top Pages report to break down which of your pages are bringing in the most traffic, then figure out how you can replicate their success. Want to learn more? Check out their blog or YouTube channel for step-by-step SEO tutorials. They have a seven-day trial for only $7. Head over to hrefs.com to sign up. That's ahrefs.com to sign up. As always, I so appreciate all your fantastic support and I can't wait to bring you another set of fantastic episodes next week.